0: Good morning, Terwilliger Community Church. It's a blessing to be with you uh, this morning. And uh, I want to thank you all for those of you who've been praying. I know that uh, many of you know my wife is uh, expecting our second child, and it could happen any second now. So if the sermon gets really, really short and I run out the door, you'll all know exactly what happened. Um, But uh, hopefully, hopefully I'll get through the message this morning. Uh, But I want to give us uh, a couple scenarios this morning for us to think about. So you're driving down Williger Drive, a car is up behind you tailgating, coming really tight, and then all of a sudden they pull out around you and cut you off and keep going. What do you do? Or maybe you find yourself at school or at work or maybe even at home and someone stands up in front of everyone who's around and says something really bad about you, speaks ill of you in front of everyone else. How do you respond? Or another scenario: you're you're sitting on the couch, you're watching your favorite TV show, you're reading your favorite book or newspaper, you're just you're relaxing, having a great day, and someone comes up to you and says, "Hey, I need you to do this thing for me right now." How do you respond? Well, I think in any of these situations, we might respond in one of two ways: we might fight. Or we might, as they say, flight. We might have a fight or a flight response. So if someone cuts you off in traffic, do you choose the flight response? And you just kind of, oh, whatever, just let them go. Or do you push on the gas, get up behind them, and try to cut them off? That's the fight response. If someone says rude, something rude about you in public, and and makes you feel like, oh, man, they just, I can't believe they said that. Do you kind of ball up and just... Kind of take it, sit there quietly? The flight response? Or do you stand up and and say something bad about them? The fight response. If someone asks you to do something which you don't really want to do, do you you kind of choose the flight response and just do it half-heartedly and whatever, grumbling the whole time? Or do you choose the fight response and stand up and say, No, I'm not doing this thing. Well, if you're anything like me, your response to any one of those situations might vary. You know, when I'm, when I'm driving, I like to think I'm pretty cool-headed, so I'd probably just be like, whatever. You know, they're in a hurry. I don't care. But if someone says something bad about me, I might not say something back right in that moment. But later on, oh man, they have it coming. Or, or if someone asks me to do something that I just really don't want to do, I'd probably fight back. Like, no, I'm busy. I'm reading my book. I'm watching TV. Leave me alone. What if there, though, is a creative third way? What if there's another way to respond that is neither fight nor flight? Those of us who are here this morning, I believe many of us uh, would call ourselves Christians— We believe at the heart of our Christian faith is to love God and to love other people. And loving God is is one thing. We work on that in our hearts. Through life, striving to be people who uh, grow our affections towards God. But comes to loving people? Sometimes that sounds like a way better idea than it does sound like a great practice, right? Because loving other people is great until you find yourself around people who cross you. Loving other people sounds great when, when, uh, until you find yourself in a situation where someone is being really mean to you. When someone is maybe uh, speaking ill of you or taking advantage of you. So when it comes to us loving others, especially others who are maybe treating us poorly, how do we respond? Well, I believe that's what Jesus is teaching on in this passage. How do we respond when someone is trying to take advantage of us? When someone is trying to shame us? When someone is being rude to us? And I believe that at the core of what Jesus is inviting his disciples to do is this. Do not return evil for evil. Instead, return evil for good. Do not return evil for evil. Instead, return evil for good. So let's break down this passage and see how it plays out for us in our context. I think the first thing that Jesus is getting at in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is that returning evil for good requires us to surrender our rights. Returning evil for good requires us to surrender our rights. Jesus quotes for them some teaching from the Old Testament found in three different places. Uh, Leviticus chapter 24 verse 19 to 20. uh, This is what we read. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. So the understanding in Jesus' time when he's teaching this Sermon on the Mount, the, the understanding of the people listening would have been that they have the right to get even or get back at the person who's done them wrong. They're completely justified in eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth behavior. It's what it says in the law. However, when we look closer at the Torah, the first four books of the Bible, or five books of the Bible, sorry, uh, we see that the reading isn't actually that simple. Because while the Torah does say eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth, Um, it also gives us some context of where this, how this plays out. Deuteronomy chapter 19, where we read the eye for eye, tooth for tooth section, uh, we understand that this commandment uh, was to be exercised in the context of a court. This commandment was to be exercised in the context of two or three witnesses. Um, And so it wasn't the simplicity of me being offended and seeking revenge. Uh, There's a bit more going on with that. In addition to that, Also in Leviticus chapter 19, um, so a little bit earlier before the passage that I read for us, in Leviticus 19 verse 18, uh, we read this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself for I am the Lord. So when we read Leviticus 19 verse 18 and then we read Leviticus chapter 24, we kind of get A bit of a conflicting message on the surface, don't we? But when we understand them in context, we come to see that the eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth instruction ensured that the punishment given fit the crime. And so uh, the -the eye-for-the-eye, tooth-for-tooth, was meant to protect people. It wasn't meant to help someone get vengeance or revenge. See, our human nature is... Our human nature wants to see the punishment exceed the crime or the offense. It's this reality that if if someone goes and kills my cow, I want to go burn down their barn, right? I don't want to just kill their cow. I want them to pay for what they've done. But this commandment we have in the Old Testament is God's way of protecting the person who killed the cow from his barn being burnt down. And so we have this commandment as a way to protect the social order within Israel. So Jesus comes along and he counters the incorrect understanding of the eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth teaching. Now, something that's interesting for us as we're reading the Sermon on the Mount, we would have noticed that when Jesus says, you've heard it said you should not murder, he goes on to say, but I say to you, you don't even get angry— uh, we see, in, and then we see when he says, "Don't commit adultery." I say to you, "Don't even have lust in your heart." Uh, he says that, "Don't uh, swear falsely," but I say to you, "Do not even take an oath at all." In each of these commandments we've had leading up to this one, Jesus seems to exceed the practice, practical understanding of the command. So, don't murder. I get that. I, I shouldn't murder, but don't be angry. He's, he's he's raising the bar. What's interesting in this case of retaliation? Jesus doesn't raise the bar. He seems to just throw it out. And he gives us a new command. Instead of saying, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He doesn't go on to raise it, but he gives them something different all together. And what is that that he says? He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, many words have been exhausted uh, trying to unpack How we rightly translate this concept of resisting the one who is evil from the Greek into our modern English. There's a lot of scholarly debate around the understanding of these words and how it plays out. Uh, So I want to give us a couple couple thoughts on that. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright translates it like this. He says, don't use violence to resist evil. Don't use violence to resist evil. That kind of helps me unpack this idea of do not resist the one who is evil. Maybe it will help you. Uh, My New Testament professor at Prairie College, uh, Richie White, uh, he was my my Greek professor. He translated it like this. He said, do not get even with the one who is evil. Again, I, I think this helps us unpack a bit of what he's saying. But again, the summary of what Jesus is getting at here, I believe, is do not return evil for evil instead return evil for good now to these thoughts you and i or jesus's first hearers might protest we might say okay jesus but come on he killed my cow jesus come on they, they said something wrong about me on social media they misrepresented me in this situation jesus they're demanding me to do something that's just ridiculous What do you mean I can't get even? I have a right to get even. We protest. When someone wrongs us, you and I feel justified at getting back at them, don't we? Whether we're sitting in traffic or a friend pranks us or someone comes and demands something of us. It's my right. I deserve it. But Jesus calls his disciples to be the types of people who, though they might have a right to get even, they surrender it. Though you might have the right to get even, Jesus is inviting you to surrender it. Why? For the sake of the kingdom of God and for the sake of the good of their offender. The staff at TCC recently took part in a right now media conference that was all online. And I unfortunately was only able to take in uh, one of the sessions. But the session I took in, the speaker, Brian Laredes, told this great story. He talked about how he flies a lot and uh, because of his speaking. He's all over the place. And so he's become a Delta Diamond member. And a Delta Diamond member, if they have a, a coach ticket and there's an opening in first class, their coach ticket gets free upgrades to first class. That sounds really nice, doesn't it, right? You know how when you walk on the plane and you pass all those seats and there's a couple empty ones, you're like, oh, it'd be nice to sit there. Well, if you're a Diamond member with Delta, you will get upgraded to that spot. And so, but Brian Laredes goes on to say that when he's flying with his wife and they upgrade his ticket to first class, but they don't upgrade his wife's, he knows better than to go to first class and leave his wife in coach, Right? So what does he do? What he does is he sits next to his wife and coach. He's taking someone else's seat. And when that person comes in, they say, hey, you're sitting in my seat. Brian says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes, my ticket was upgraded to first class and I want you to have it. And so this stranger gets to go to first class and Brian sits with his wife and his marriage is much happier than it would have been. Now, what a great picture Brian Loretus has the right to sit in first class. He's the one who travels, not his wife. The ticket's in his name, not his wife's. It's certainly not in the name of a stranger. But for the sake of the good of those around him, for the sake of the good of his marriage, he gives up the right to sit in first class for the good of someone else. Friends, though we may feel justified Though we may have the right to get even, Jesus is calling us to give that up. Well, as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't just give us instruction then walk out the back door, right? He gives us instruction then he helps us understand what it actually looks like for us to walk out some of his teaching. He shows us how to get to where he wants us to go. And in this passage in particular, he gives us four examples of how to live out what he's talking about. Now a quick observation about a text like this is the temptation that we have is to take it apart line for line. Like it's some sort of rule book. You know, we look at each one that Jesus teaches and say, Okay, well in this situation I I give my cloak. In this I turn my cheek. Then we dissect it. Uh, but Jesus here isn't giving us a rule book. Rather, I believe that he's describing the behavior of his followers in very particular circumstances. So when we look to understand it, it's not about placing ourselves in these particular circumstances. It's rather for us to develop what, uh, what Richard Hayes uh, calls moral imagination. So when a, a Christian is out living in the world and is offended by someone else... These descriptions that Jesus gives us should spark our moral imagination for how we might respond in similar situations or in, or in any situation where someone offends us. So I want you to keep that in mind as we unpack this. So what are the four examples? The first example is cheek turning. The example of ch- cheek turning. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, it's important for us to pick up the details that Jesus is leaving for us. First of all, he's saying that you're being struck on which cheek? The right cheek. This is an important detail. Why is it important? Because in the first century, no one would ever strike someone with their left hand. The left hand was a hand that was reserved for unclean things. So the left hand wasn't involved in this thing. So if it's the right hand striking the right cheek, uh, we understand that the hit would have to be a backhand hit. You can't strike someone on the right cheek with your right hand and use the open face of your palm. You'd have to strike them across the cheek. So Jesus' words are very important for us to know. Because the implications here are, is that this action is more about insult than it's about hurt. The backhand, on the, the backhand hit was used to put people in a lower, lower on the social ladder in their place. Is a way to shame someone, a way to disgrace someone. And in an honor-shame society, this was an incredible insult to the dignity of a person to be struck with the backhand on your right cheek. It was a huge insult. So let's go back to our opening illustrations. Someone has struck you with their backhand on the cheek. What do you do? Do you choose the flight response? Or maybe you just lay on the floor and, and you cower? Do you choose the fight response where you get up and you strike them back? Or do we consider what Jesus has called us to in this radical third way? and We turn the other cheek. The word that we have here in the Greek literally means to turn and face this person. So instead of violently responding, we stand back up in protest the action that's just taken place against us. By turning the other cheek, we reclaim our dignity and we expose the abuse of authority. Friends, violence for violence doesn't work. We've seen this over and over again throughout human history. Striking someone back on their cheek simply justifies the initial action taken by the person who's trying to offend you. Because when you strike them back, it's, see, they don't respect my authority. See, they're out to hurt me too. But when you turn the other cheek, we reclaim that dignity. And we expose that person's abuse to all the people around us. You're not cowering in fear, laying there, taking it half-heartedly. But you're also not getting up and fighting back. You're standing in front of them. Dallas Willard says that we remain vulnerable to them. Now, the hope is that this action disarms the offender. The hope is that this action is the first step moving towards reconciliation. And if you've noticed in the last few weeks, Jesus is all about reconciliation. Friends, there's a time for fight and flight when we are struck. There's a time for you to engage in self-defense if someone is coming against you in that way. I do not think Jesus is speaking to that type of a situation though. Jesus is speaking to the issue of getting even by violent means. To draw these verses into this concept of self-defense or this concept of uh, violent response, I think is to take this out of context. You can challenge me on that if you'd like. What we're called to in this moral imagination. Is that when someone strikes us. They speak poorly about us on social media. They say something rude in the context of friends. They, uh, they, they abuse or hurt our feelings in some sort of way. We do not rise to their level and retaliate in the same way that they've offended us. Rather we stand in front of them. We turn our cheek. We remain vulnerable to them. And seek to see reconciliation take place in the context of that relationship. The second illustration Jesus gives is the giving of a cloak. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So again, this is, what's the language Jesus is using? He's talking about a court of law. So you are being sued. Someone comes against you. They're trying to take you for all that you're worth. Now we got to understand again some of the first century things going on. The reference to the tunic, we understood in the first century, everyone wore a tunic close to their skin. You probably have a footnote in your Bible that's saying what a tunic is. So a tunic was this undergarment that everyone had on. Now, if someone sues you to the point that they take your tunic, uh, you're left with only one thing, and that is your cloak. Now, Jewish law prohibited um, someone taking a cloak from someone else. Why? The cloak was worn on top of the tunic— and at nighttime, it was used as a blanket. And so in the Torah, there's actually laws that say if you take someone's cloak from them, to like, um, to kind of hold that and say, okay, you owe me this thing. I'm going to take your cloak until you give me that thing back or whatever it is. By law, they had to return the cloak by sunset. And so there was no taking of cloaks. So you're in the court of law. He takes your tunic. You're standing there with nothing but your cloak. It's all you have left. What do you do? Do you choose a flight response? And kind of gather what you have left and wander home? Lick your wounds? Or do you choose the fight response? Where you go hire your own lawyer and try to sue them for all their worth. Leave them with nothing but their cloak. Or is there a radical third way? Now we have to catch Jesus' humor here. Because if you don't have a tunic on and all you have on is a cloak... And you're in a court of law. And you hand them your cloak. Well now you're standing naked. In front of all these people. But what have you done? You've just exposed. The abuse. Of your offender. You are exposing their greed. You're exposing in them. This heart that desires to take from you. All that you have. In the. And all of this is being witnessed by many people. So you expose their greed, ruthlessness, and evil. And in an honor and shame society, you call them out in public. And what's interesting too is that in addition to that, you've actually given to them more than they've required. And in doing so, you've extended God's love to them. It's like, well, if you're so desperate for my tunic, you must need my cloak as well. Take my cloak. The third example Jesus gives us is going the extra mile. Again, first century context. The Jews were living under the Roman rule. And the understanding was that a Roman officer could come to any Jewish person and say, Hey, my armor is heavy. I need you to carry this armor for one mile. So this, of course, is the example of you are sitting. You're reading your favorite book. You're watching your favorite show. You're, you're just relaxing. You're enjoying your day. Someone comes up to you and demands something from you. So in Jewish culture, it was expected that you would indeed listen and carry that armor for one mile. But how do you respond? The flight response? You, you do it? You do it half-heartedly? You drag your feet? You're miserable? You don't like being there? Or do you fight back? And in the first century, there were indeed groups of Jewish people who were getting ready to fight back against the Romans. They'll get theirs. Man, they made me carry that for one. I'm going to make them carry it for seven, whatever it was. They were going to violently fight back against the Romans. Or was there a radical, loving, kingdom-proclaiming third way? Or instead of doing it half-heartedly... Your response to them is to go that one mile and and say, hey, let's go another mile. I'll carry this for you for another mile. And you do it to the best of your ability. We would expect someone to only give the minimum of what was required from them. Instead, they seek the welfare of the person requiring something. That is how you retaliate. Thirdly, is this example of extreme generosity. Generosity. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Option one, this idea of a flight response. Someone asks you for something, just kind of half-heartedly give it. Out of moral duty or obligation. Or B, the fight response. You say to them, absolutely not. I'm not giving to you what is mine. Go get a job, go figure out your life. Or the creative third way. You give to them out of relationship. And what I love about this is that Jesus here is calling you to be actively involved in breaking the chain of evil that has been done against them and demonstrate to them the love of God. You give generously with a heart seeking to see this person restored. So we see how in each one of these examples Jesus is not calling Christians to be people who are passive, who allow themselves to be taken advantage of. He's not not holding up this idea of just let people walk all over you because you're a Christian. In each of these four examples, the what Jesus is calling us to is a a form of radical resistance to, to oppression, a radical resistance to injustice. A radical resistance to greed. And in all of it, extending God's love to the world around us. Each of these behaviors is to be characteristic of a disciple of Jesus. Who is becoming more like Jesus. And at the core of each one is a picture of what it actually looks like for you and I to love our enemies. We'll be talking more about that next week. And what I love about this too is that each of these behaviors are characteristic of Jesus himself. Because when we read the New Testament carefully in the biographies of Jesus we have in the four gospels, we see that Jesus was one who was stripped naked and hung on a cross. We see that Jesus was one who was struck but did not strike back, instead turned the other cheek. We see in Jesus one who went the extra mile. We see in Jesus one who exemplifies extreme generosity. And when I think about it in the context of my own life. And I reflect on how many times I have done wrong towards God. Friends, the amount of times I've offended God. That's too many to count. But in Jesus' loving kindness. He remains a presence in my life. He remains gracious towards me. He loves me when I do not love him. He turns his cheek when I offend him. And he gives to me more than I demand or ask. Over and over again. Jesus is the great cheek turner. Jesus is the great giver of cloaks. Jesus is the one who went the extra mile. Jesus is extremely Generous, and I don't know about you, but I want to be more like Jesus. Well, obviously, these verses raise for us so many questions. So many questions. But, friends, at the heart of it, I think we, as followers of Jesus, need to note that when that feeling of wanting to get even rises up in us, we need to take a step back. We need to pray. Now these verses um, have been used in a lot of different ways. Um, I did hours of reading this past week on just war theory and all sorts of stuff. And I I don't have time to speak to that this morning. If you'd like resources on on kind of tracing some of the logical conclusions of what Jesus is saying, um, I'd be happy to refer you to some different resources. But I say that to say that we need to resist the temptation of allowing these verses to get lost in these hypothetical situations. You know what I mean. When we say, well, what about this scenario? Or what about that scenario? And, and how does this play out over here? Friends, Jesus is not inviting us in this case to be lawyers who pick apart his commandments and try to break down the nuances of what it looks like for us. Rather, we need to ask our, of ourselves, where do I need to check my own heart in regards to vengeance? Where do I need to check my own heart in regards to demanding my own rights? Because it's so easy for us to miss the immediate application in Jesus' words by playing this, what if this or what if that. We should not look to get out of what Jesus is calling us to, but rather we should seek to apply it to our lives. Now friends, I know that many of us have probably been hurt by other people. We've probably been the victim of abuse. We've probably been bullied. We've probably been pushed over. We've been cut off in traffic. We've been spoken ill of. People have demanded things from us that we did not want to give to them. But we had to anyway. We've been taken advantage of. We've been overworked and underpaid. All of these things. What do we do with all of these emotions and these frustrations? Because it feels like Jesus is just telling us to ignore them. But to ignore them is to push away the whole counsel of the word of God. I absolutely love the book of Psalms. Absolutely love it. It It's this beautiful prayer book. But perhaps you've been reading the Psalms and you've been like, whoa, is this in the Bible? (laughs) In Psalm 109, we have this beautiful psalm. It's not beautiful; it's more like the lyrics of like a, a death metal song than it is like a song we'd sing in church on Sunday morning, right? Like you read Psalm 103, it's like "Bless the Lord, O oh my soul." We sing that, we proclaim it, um, you know. But David in Psalm 109, he was offended. Someone hurt his feelings. Someone stepped on his toe. Someone abused him. Someone took advantage of him. What did David do? He brought that person to the Lord. He came to God in this honest prayer and and prayed, Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tired, let him come, tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. Make another take his offense. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Whoa! David! We don't sing this on Sunday mornings, do we? (laughs) Absolutely not. But what do we have here in the Psalms? The prayer book of Israel. What do you do when someone's offended you? You take them to God. You take them to God. Vengeance, friends, is not ours. Vengeance is the Lord's. And we have King David here taking his offender to God and saying, God, I am angry at this person. I was hurt by this person. This is, and he lets out all his frustrations. Where? In the prayer closet. He lets out all his anger. Where? In the prayer closet. And he gives this person to God. Romans 12 speaks to this as well. Paul writing to the church. Christians, how are you to live? 12 verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Do you catch this? It's not eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So friends, as followers of Jesus, we take our offenders to God. We take our anger to God. We lay it out before Him. And we trust that vengeance is the Lord's. We trust that Jesus is going to deal justly with them. And what's our role with them? It's to love them. To pray for them. But again, we'll talk more about that next week. So, what do we do when someone cuts us off in traffic, or speaks ill of us, or demands something of us that we don't want to give? Well, friends, as disciples of Jesus, it's not easy. But we follow in the way of Jesus. We do not repay evil for evil, but we repay evil for good. I just have some questions for you this morning. Pastor Norb sent them out in his, his email this morning, and I just I'll invite the worship team to join me on the platform. Um, but here's just some questions to think about. What experiences cause you to want to get revenge or get even? How may you extend love instead? Who do you need to bring before the Lord and release into your forgiveness? Who who comes to mind when you hear Psalm 109? <laughs> How can you take that person to the Lord in prayer? And then what thoughts or feelings do you encounter when you consider Jesus' demonstration of this kind of love towards us? It's God, God, guys, God loves us so much. He's demonstrated that again and again. And I believe by the power of His Spirit, He's going to help us love others. Let's pray. Yes, Jesus, we are so grateful to you. Thank you for that radical love that you've extended to us. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to be a people who do not return evil for evil, but instead return evil for good. Amen.